Welcome to another episode of the I've Got Questions podcast, a quest, a podcast all about pre-modern and the questions I have. And today is an episode where podcasts unite and collide, and we have a wonderful guest with us. His name is Mike Harris, one of the bestest, most awesomest guys ever that I've met in pre-modern and a co-host of the Pre-Modcast podcast as well. Mike, what's going on, sir? Hey, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for that intro. Very Ab- kind. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, you were kind enough to show me all the love when I was with you guys, so it is time to return the favor. And mm-hmm. we, we have a wonderful episode today, not only because we get to talk to Mike, but we get to talk about a deck that I have so many questions on that I would never, ever play. Um, some of you may guess what this is. For those of you who don't know, we are going to be talking about Hermit Feb, that is Hermit Full English Breakfast. And if you are not familiar with the deck, boy, wait till we read you the deck list. And um, you'll try and understand, but Mike is going to break it all down for us. He was on um, Monster of the Week uh, back in November, but this is kind of an update episode. We haven't heard tell, and there have been some small little tweaks and innovations across uh, the board with the metagame shifting. But before that... Mike, please tell us a little bit about your history in magic and what led you into pre-modern. Oh, absolutely. So I've been playing since I was eight years old in 94, Um, you know, not knowing any of the rules and playing with my big brother and always losing. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, he uh, was much older than me, so he went off to college and I kind of dropped out. And then when I was in middle school, I started going to the comic book stores and playing casually. And then, like, I just really wanted to play competitively. So I started going to the PTQs and stuff. And, you know, this was like late 90s, early 2000s, back when it was like you'd drive an hour and a half to get to the one PTQ that would be in your entire region. And, you know, as a 14-year-old, you'd scrub out pretty early, (laughs) but still stick around. And then you'd be lucky enough to get to a JSS where you actually had a fighting chance. Um, I did manage to make it to the finals of a JSS in, I think it was 2002. And so I got to go to the JSS Nationals that year. That was the uh, Odyssey Invasion standard. (laughs) And so that was kind of like my big moment in the sun when I got to actually travel for magic. Um, And then, you know, other than that, I think I made like the semis of a PTQ, but that was a big deal back then Mm -hmm. because it was like a hundred plus people, Um, but nothing really to speak of. And then kind of dropped out of magic. I kind of realized, all right, I've spent all my time for the past, you know, for my adolescence, just playing magic. I need to start like getting out there and having a real life. Yep. <laughs> so I dropped out and then I guess it was about 2014. 
I got back into it and I was like, I'm just going to dip my toe in, you know? So I played some limited, then I played standard, then I played modern, then I played legacy. And all this was in like a six month period. (laughs) (laughs) So I was hooked, you know, that hook is deep, especially when you played it in childhood. And um, so, you know, it's kind of been my hobby, like I'm married and I have kids now and it was like, I can't be grinding. I can't be going to tournaments. Even monthly is too much to ask. So that's kind of when I first discovered old school where it was like, all right, so I don't really need to be buying new cards every single tournament I go to. Mm -hmm. I can just kind of build a deck that I love and just play this for a while. Yep. And so I did old school for a couple of years and then discovered pre-modern. And at first I was like, uh, I'm too into this old school thing. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get into pre-modern. Yeah. <laughs> and funnily enough, buy-listed most of my old stuff in order to get some CE Moxon. Yeah. Got into pre-modern like the next month. <laughs> so. Well, you, you never know how it's going to end up. Truly, you don't. Exactly. And I'm glad I have those mocks in. And the buy-in for pre-modern is not nearly as bad as old school. So, you know, it's kind of been, uh, oh, I could build that deck for 50 bucks. Yep. All right. Might as well. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you do that I can trade every one two of, weeks. <laughs> I can trade one of these mocks in for the entire, like, gauntlet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, this is the value of the top five decks. <laughs> yeah. So before we jump into um, fully into pre-modern, you mentioned kind of a PTQ grinder circuit in the younger days. Um, we just had Michael Hoyp on, and he was the same way. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I, I did not get to participate t- until towards the end of that. Um, but a lot of people seem to be from the older... Um, PTQ grinding GPs um and it seems to be that would reached its height during when pre-modern was starting to exist so do you think that almost develops a camaraderie with people who play this format at least initially when this format together you got to relive PTQ stories or man this was yeah. a bad beat when I had to play goblins and block or do you remember no, Tolarian Academy and all yep. of that stuff? Yep. There's the reminiscing, but just uh, having been there during that time, there's just so much of like, because this is when the internet was like just becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. So, so much was still word of mouth. You know, it yep. was like you, you'd go to the tournament and so it'd be like, oh, did you hear what happened at whatever big tournament recently? Mm-hmm. And everyone would be talking about it. Oh, but yeah. But it's like, how did that first person hear about it? Absolutely. <laughs> and it was a time of, um, you know, they used to, it seemed like they used to schedule pro tours uh, right after the release of a new set. So they're more mm-hmm. a rotation. So yes. you'd have new things, or you'd be waiting for um, regionals. Was a great time right. to see the decks or states. What was coming out of states? Um, I even remember nationals. watching on ESPN two. Yep, <laughs> and I actually recorded the Pro Tour Chicago in two thousand. That was which was Maher, the one right? right after Invasion came out. Was that Maher's? Uh, no, no, that, that was, was when uh, Kai Buda won it with. Uh, I think. 
he was playing Rebels with the green splash for Wax Wayne. Okay. And beat Camille Cornelison, who had the proto counter Rebels. Gotcha. If I'm remembering properly. Yeah. Was Maher also a Chicago pro tour? With the, yes, that, that was, was the Ivory Seven, Ma- I believe. Okay, so that was or no ninety nine. Okay, so that was a year or so before. Uh, speaking Probably of getting which, this all wrong. It's all right. People are like, "What the which, hell, guys?" But which is why it is very important and a shame that Wizards took down all coverage. It's gone. I it's know nowhere. all the videos. Nowhere to be seen. Even like you used to be able to Google like PT Chicago ninety nine and find the article paper articles still. Yeah, Those are yeah. now gone. Oh my gosh, that's you cannot find the written coverage. At least I can't. So, if anybody, maybe we should just get everybody together and start archives things because some of those were great moments. Um, my biggest one was uh, a little after that, but PT Honolulu, the uh, Lightning Helix Pro Tour. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember watching and just it was just very excited always to watch it. Um, some of the old extended Pro Tours were amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah, they were so much fun. So I just Googled real quick. And yes, 99 Chicago was when Mar and Brian Davis were in the finals. Right. And so that's the correct about that. Ivory and mask then, for whatever the craziness that was. Yeah. And then 2000, I was indeed correct. Kai Buda took it down with the green splash rebels over Camille Cornelison's counter rebels. And then there were. Three, no, four fires decks in the top eight. And Brian Kibler, that was when he introduced Red Zone. Mm -hmm. And Brian Kibler was actually, I I grew up in Atlanta and Mm -hmm. uh, he was in Atlanta at the time. And so I latched on to Red Zone at the time where it was basically fires, but with Armageddon instead of fires. (laughs) (laughs) And that was my pet deck for that era. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's one card that, for all the love it and nostalgia it has, Fires hasn't quite caught on in pre-modern and probably, unfortunately, will not. It's just not good enough. It's not anymore. <laughs> but let's just jump back into the pre-modern after the reminiscing. Yeah, for sure. Um, you discover pre-modern after coming from old school. You initially mm-hmm. were hooked on old school. What eventually drew you away from that scene, which is a very popular scene, yeah, um, for sure. into pre-modern primarily? Well, the biggest thing is that there's just so much more depth to pre-modern. Like, I had been playing old school for about a year at the time, and I still play old school from time to time, but it's like, it's such a small card pool, and the competitive cards are such a small, small pool within that, Mm -hmm. where it's like every deck you're building... You know, you're going to have like your Swords to Plowshares, your Lightning Bolts, your Mishra's Factories, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And um, the other thing is that to keep the price point down, I told myself I'm not building any blue or black. I'm just <laughs> taking all the good cards in green, red and white. And I could basically build every competitive deck in those three colors, mm-hmm. which is surprisingly cheap. Also, this was right before duels spiked. So I managed nice. to get those 12 duels for about like 50 to 100 each. There you go. We like to hear that. Yeah. And but, you know, once you've once you've done that and you've already said like, 
I'm not springing for even CE power. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just those moxen I referred to are, of course, the red, white, and green ones. Right, right. <laughs> and once you're like, I'm not springing for the rest. It's like, so I've hit the limit. I've hit the wall. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've whereas kind of, pre-modern, mm-hmm. on the other hand. So I I jumped into it and I was like, well, that PTQ that I mentioned that I made uh, to the semis of. That was an Odyssey block actually uh, constructed, and it was with Blue Green Madness Quiet Speculation. Okay. So I was like, oh, I can actually play these cards again. Like, <laughs> I haven't played them since I had that good run with it. So easily, you know, I think it probably cost me like 20 bucks right. <laughs> to put together Blue Green Madness. And so, because uh, this was before people discovered putting survival in it. And so I just built ones. that, right? <laughs> yeah. there, for some reason, it's expensive because it's good. I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was like, I'll just put this together. This will be the only pre-modern deck that I played because I just kind of want to dip my toe in. And you know, this was even before the monthlies, and I was just kind of like finding pickup matches here and there on the online group, and you know, then. I believe the first monthly was run by Ron Taylor mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh man, there's a monthly tournament. All right. I gotta, I gotta join that. So I might as well like kind of brew around and get a little more into pre-modern. Mm-hmm. And this is actually serves as a good segue into our topic because in that first monthly, I played kind of like a blue, green, white threshold base deck okay. you know it had werebears mystic enforcers nimble mongoose mm-hmm. uh mental note <laughs> all that stuff yep tons of fun you Absolutely. know because like that was totally my wheelhouse i loved the odyssey block mechanics madness and threshold in this tournament though this was when bargain was still unbanned I got my ass handed to me by the combo decks. <laughs> I had no clue how broken the pre-modern combos were. And one combo in particular, a guy, he puts out, you know, a survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all right, uh, I can deal with this because I actually got a good start. I already have threshold and I've got two nimble mongoose out. I'm golden. Absolutely. Next thing I know, he... Casts a Volrath shapeshifter, which confuses me. And I'm just like, all right, you do you, man. I'm hopefully going to get in there with these mongies. And then next turn, he drops, or no, I think that turn, he was able to drop the Acroma in the yard, (sighs) swing in, change it to a phage. And I'm like, what? What? (laughs) This isn't supposed to happen. I was winning. I was playing fair magic. Exactly. I just lost, and it's like turn four or whatever. By the way, I don't think I ever have seen versions with Phage in it, and I now love it even more. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, well, so that's how Full English Breakfast kind of started. Um, I have since looked it up and full English breakfast was a thing, I believe mostly in extended in yep. like the early to mid two thousands. I think you're right. That sounds about when I first heard of it. Now, wasn't take us through the history of it from what you remember. Um, 
before even pre-modern. Because whenever I thought of Feb, and I may be wrong, I always thought there was like a cephalid illusionist sort of aspect to it. Or am I thinking of a different? What, what deck am I thinking? Are you thinking of, of sh- cephalid ink shrouder? Because no, for a long time, that was a part of it. And actually, maybe. this very opponent that I played in the first tournament was playing this version. Because uh, so this is where Full English Breakfast kind of started. Mm-hmm. Cephalid Ink Shrouder, for the listeners who don't know, it's a 2-1 blue Odyssey creature that discard a card. Cephalid Ink Shrouder gains... Uh, not hexproof shroud because <laughs> mm-hmm. hexproof doesn't exist in pre-modern yep, yep. gains shroud and unblockable. And this is really good when you're doing the phage combo mm. because you use the phage as the discard to that. Yep. And now you have an unblockable, untargetable phage that just gets right in there. Um, <laughs> as full English breakfast has grown and evolved in pre-modern, is no longer where most people are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just pulled up on uh, MTG Top 8. The first Feb deck it has is from 2007, and it's actually in Vintage. Okay. And it looks like it was Legacy after that. Okay. So, so it started from, uh, rooting itself from the older formats on And up. I guess that makes sense because I think uh, Extended at that point would have rotated out things like survival. Mm-hmm. Um, I was no longer playing at this point, so I don't actually know, but sure. yeah, you've got about, about eight or nine results in legacy in 2008, 2009. Um, so yeah, at the time uh, they were playing the phage combo mm-hmm. where you just basically, Make the shapeshifter anything that can get through an attack. You change it to phage for listeners who don't know. Phage's ability is whenever phage deals combat damage to a player, that player loses the game. The catch being, if phage comes into play and you didn't play it from your hand, you lose the game. Mm -hmm. And it's a seven mana, four black, four, four. Mm -hmm. So... One of the many great things about Valrath's Shapeshifter is its ability to get around comes into play issues. Yep. Um, so obviously, if you drop a phage into the yard and the Shapeshifter, as long as you don't play the Shapeshifter when the phage is your top creature, you're fine. You mm-hmm. don't have to worry about it. Absolutely. And for those who don't know, Valrath's Shapeshifter is at its base... A zero one four three. That's two blue and a colorless. So, in and of itself, not a very uh, hard hitting creature. But those text. No, it is not. That text on that card though does interesting things. So, (laughs) now has Feb always been a survival deck? Has survival always been that integral part to setting up that engine? Okay. Yes. It's just the. Absolutely. You you cannot play uh, Valrath Shapeshifter and do anything without survival. Mm-hmm. Um, really, the only times that you will ever want 
to have the shapeshifter out without your survival is if you're playing the version that plays Phyrexian Dreadnought. Mm, okay. Because shapeshifter can essentially uh, become stifle five through eight or however many shapeshifters you have. Um, so I actually played the Dreadnought version of Feb before I picked up Hermit Feb mm-hmm. and made it to, I believe, the semis of the March monthly last year with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very powerful and it's a very good option. The thing, though, about Full English Breakfast, and this will also segue us away from the phage combo is that the current iteration in pre-modern is just so much better, so much more effective and that is, and so much harder to stop. And that is using Triskelion and Phyrexian devourer as your kill with the shapeshifter. For those of you not familiar how that works, now, well, we'll be clear, there's going to be a lot of various different combos in this deck and things exactly. to remember and how things are put together. But this is, you, you would say, probably your main setup for the win, right? 100%, yeah. So why don't you explain how the combination of Volraths plus Triskelion plus Phyrexian Devourer works to make your opponent dead? Yes, exactly. So, so this is why Full English Breakfast of all the combo decks is the hardest to beat because most combo decks, if you just counter the right card, you're good. Uh, With this combo, it essentially can operate and not be stopped as long as you have the right amount of mana because it uses the stack in a way where they try and kill it and you just continue going off. So mm-hmm. the way it works is this. You have your, let's just do it the most simple way, because another <laughs> thing about this deck, <laughs> for yes. anyone listening who wants to pick it up, you will need many reps to, and not goldfishing reps, you will need many reps against a live opponent to see just how much goes wrong and just how many things you have to think your way out of. Yep. Um, we said a long time ago when we kind of broke down the differences in the three main archetypes, you know, aggro, combo, control. Mm-hmm. And Jared and I kind of figured like playing combo is like you're taking a test. Yep. And it's like your opponent is the teacher saying you have five minutes left <laughs> or mm-hmm. putting rules on on the test that you don't know if you can figure them out. So the biggest thing about the gameplay of full English breakfast is when it goes wrong. But we'll just forget all of that to explain the win when it's going right. Mm-hmm. So you have your Valrath shapeshifter out. You drop devourer in the yard ideally you already have the triskelion in your hand at this point mm-hmm. now the shapeshifter is copying the devourer you begin removing the top cards of your library to the devourer's ability 
Um, anyone who has played the Devourer combo kind of knows how this works. As you remove cards from the top of your library, and that's also important that they're removed from the game so they're not affecting the shapeshifter Correct. as they go. They're not getting dropped yep. in the graveyard. Because Volrath's uh, always, as a reminder, always assumes that top creature in your yard. Correct? The top card. Oh, is it also the top? Okay, so the top yes. card. So, so if it, you have a non-creature card, it is just a Volrath shapeshifter. Okay. It's just a zero-one blue creature with pay two to discard a card. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and and that can be important. hundred <laughs> percent believe it. Because I've had many people, you know, do something like wasteland me and and it's ruin like, my day. <laughs> so exactly. So we have so, devour out there. We're throwing out now. Touch on the you mentioned the stack. Why is the stack and how it can be manipulated important in regards specifically to devour? Right. So this is important because Devourer has the clause of when Phyrexian Devourer's power and toughness, or I think just power, becomes greater than seven, or seven or greater, it dies. Now, if you're playing, say, so the other cool thing about the Shapeshifter is since you can instant speed change it to a different creature... If you wanted to, and I've actually won this way sometimes, like if, say, a Mesmeric Fiend has my Triskelion, so mm -hmm. I can't go for the regular one, um, you can start removing them, not allowing the triggers to resolve. So all of those counters, all those plus one, plus one counters will be not hitting the creature, so that clause will never happen. Mm -hmm. And then you change it to a different creature. All the counters go onto the shapeshifter and whatever creature you've turned it into. It no longer has that devourer cause. Mm -hmm. And then you can just attack in with a giant whatever. Yep. However, that's actually not what you want to do when you're going for the Triskelion win. Because in that, uh, what I just outlined, they can just kill it and then you're screwed. Mm-hmm. If you're going for the Triskelion win, you want to let all those counters resolve. So, you know, you start turning things over. It hits higher than seven power. The trigger goes on the stack. Yep. You respond to the trigger that's going to kill it by continuing to resolve counters and removing things from the top of your library. An important errata has been made to Phyrexian Devourer that it no longer puts a plus X plus X counter. It instead puts X plus one plus one counters. So now you have a bunch of plus one plus one counters. You do that until you have 20 or more, and then you change it to the Triskelion, and using survival especially, since it's part of the cost of survival to discard the card, they can't even respond to it Mm -hmm. because you're not waiting for that survival to resolve. You're just dropping the Triskelion into the yard. Your Volrath Shapeshifter now has all of those plus one, plus one counters, and then you just shoot them all at your opponent. Absolutely. That clause that would have killed the uh, Shapeshifter, that's still going to happen, but your opponent's dead. 
So it doesn't matter. Absolutely. And as uh, described, the way in which this works, survival, the discard is part of the cost. Um, things, uh, mm-hmm. because you d- does not cost mana an activation cost beyond removing the card for devour. Once this deck goes, that you can't really, you can't interact with it, as you mentioned before. It's if, say, they try and kill it, no matter how many times, it's like, okay, I guess I just... I'll keep Continue doing this till I get off. my counters, <laughs> and as long as I have that mana to dump this in here, it's it's going to get you. There's no longer an opening Absolutely. for them to do that. You never lose priority, or in a simpler sense, you never lose your opportunity to do something before your opponent. Exactly. Um, and, and another interesting thing is that because this is the way it works, it can win through a Tormod's Crypt because you just... They activate their Tormod script, you continue going off. Mm-hmm. It can win through a Planar Void because Planar Void is not like Rest in Peace. It is not a replacement effect. Nope. It goes on it the stack says, for each one. Right. It says when a card hits the graveyard, it is then removed. It's a trigger. So you respond to the trigger by Absolutely. continuing to go off. So in a vacuum, the traditional way that these sorts of decks are battled against the uh, graveyard removal in general is negated as long as you understand what you're playing around. You're not just dumping right. things willy nilly into the graveyard and uh, whatever, who cares? Mm-hmm. All right. So say that that's a way to win. We can do that. Uh, mm-hmm. We can shoot you with Triskelion a million times. Fantastic. Right. What happens if, our Triskelion gets removed somehow, or our Devourer gets removed somehow, or I, I, I don't know, somebody briberies and takes it. I don't know. <laughs> I, whatever. What happens if one of those options is not available? How are we getting there? Well, so first of all, that's one of the things that's really cool about this deck is that there are other options, but... As the deck has evolved, like I said, people have moved away from the phage combo. Uh, if you're playing classic Feb, you've probably cut a chroma at this point because honestly, that hardly ever happens. <laughs> That's fair. You, you would you would be shocked how little times that actually happened, but it does. And when I found myself in those situations. Uh, What I usually end up doing is what I described earlier, where I'll just start removing things to the Devourer to make it huge, and then change it to, like, say, a bird. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if that Shapeshifter has been on the table for more than a turn, it doesn't matter. It it can attack. Um, Other things you can do... I mean, there's not really that much, but Psychotog is a big favorite of mine in mm-hmm. this deck. And it's kind of why I felt so naturally drawn to Hermit Feb. Uh, Psychotog gets you out of so many jams because it cleans up your graveyard for you. Yes. It sometimes happens where, say, you're early in the game, especially if your opponent is playing discard. And you do manage to get the survival out, but the only creature in your hand is the Triskelion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the only creature you don't want to discard early. But if you get a Psychotog, 
You can still go through the motions, do all the action, drop a Psychotog in the yard, remove all the relevant cards until Devour is now, or Triskelion is now on the top again. Absolutely. And that's another um, point uh, briefly to make is for those playing modern magic where this doesn't have much graveyard order within this format uh, greatly matters. Yes. Uh, whereas they don't really seem to design cards with graveyard matters anymore. It's something they went away from because it is, it is tricky to keep track of sometimes, especially if an opponent's like, can I look at your graveyard, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yes, very important to keep in mind that you're being very clear and concise. If you're going to play this deck, what is going in my graveyard in what order? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, one of my favorite things, just looking at the deck, and we'll get to the deck list we're kind of referencing a little bit later on um, as our kind of our biggest innovation where we are now, is a lot of the deck lists play a Shallow Grave, which is one of my favorite cards, not only to get your combo going, but I've definitely ran some, like, Turbo Psychotog lists where it's just, like, being able to give that hasty tog on there out of nowhere mm -hmm. is amazing. So there's also a lot of play to it outside of survival if things go wrong right you have a you have a shallow grave you have um unearths well they so that's what i was gonna say okay. so the shallow grave is actually owing to the hermit side of hermit feb mm -hmm. the unearth was an innovation to feb and so i first played it uh, actually February of last year. Mm -hmm. And I went an abysmal one in five because what I though. mentioned about the reps is yeah. absolutely true. It was my first time picking up the deck. Mm -hmm. You learn so much. Um, just counting the mana that you will need is so important. And it's so hard when you're on the spot, especially if you're a newbie at the deck and like you're looking at this deck list and you're just like, I have so many lines and I do not want my opponent to hate me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm not going to make him wait any longer and I'm just going to go for whatever, even though I don't think it's going to work. Mm -hmm. But unearth was the, uh, probably the star player to me in that first February monthly. Um, I think at the time, most people were playing three, mm -hmm. and I was just like, I'm going four next month. Absolutely. Like, this card is too good because, you know, they kill the shapeshifter. Unearth being three mana is so perfect for this deck. You bring back the shapeshifter, and this is very important, and, and we must talk about this. Okay. The way Unearth interacts with comes into play abilities and shapeshifter. Okay. Lay it on. So it really doesn't make sense, but I can guarantee you this is the way the rules work. Okay. Say I have a palancron or great whale on the top of my library or okay. my graveyard. And I have a shapeshifter in the graveyard as well. I unearth the shapeshifter. The shapeshifter comes into play, it triggers the Palancron Great Whale's ability. Mm -hmm. As soon as it resolves, it is now unearth on top of my graveyard. And Shapeshifter is back to being a Shapeshifter. But 
the ability triggered and does happen. Because it briefly saw itself. It, it briefly it, saw itself when it came when into it play. came into play. Right. Yes. It, it's it's almost one of those things where it's like in magic terms, mm-hmm. the same moment <laughs> caused yep. it to believe that it had that enters the battlefield ability, and then instantaneously mm-hmm. becomes just of all wrath shapeshifter. So if someone responds to the enters the battlefield ability by swordsing your shapeshifter, you gain zero life because it's a zero one mm-hmm. when the swords resolves. And does that, that trigger also still resolves, correct? And the trigger will also still yep. resolve. Absolutely. But this does introduce some of the times in which they can just kill your shapeshifter. Gotcha. So a lot of time, and, and this was the big aha moment for me when I first picked up the deck, was holy shit, I can cheat on so much mana by unearthing a shapeshifter. Absolutely. So you can actually pull off the win, assuming the coast is clear and your opponent doesn't have instant speed removal. You can pull off the win with two mana. Mm-hmm. As long as one, they both produce green and one of them p- produces black. Break it down for me. All right. So turn two, I cast the survival. Pass the turn. Turn comes back to me. I don't have another land drop. I have two mana. One being, say, a Lanoir Waste and the other being a forest. End of your turn. I oh you also have to have unearth in hand. <laughs> this is important. This is an important part. Unearth in hand. We got it. Very important. And uh, you probably I th- I believe you need to have either the Great Whale Palancron or a Shapeshifter in hand because at the end of their turn you're going to drop one of them in the yard to survival. Mm-hmm. Search up the other one. Then you're going to drop the next one in the yard. Mm-hmm. search up your devourer mm-hmm. your turn comes around you still have just that two mana you tap them both one for green one for black mm-hmm. you use the black to unearth the shapeshifter you get the untap enters the battlefield trigger mm-hmm. you now have one green floating and the shapeshifter enters play you use that green floating to drop the devourer that you just searched up into play, you find your Triskelion. Mm-hmm. You then go off and win. <laughs> Fair enough. And actually, yeah, yeah, just doing the math right there, you don't even need to have one of the creatures in your hand because you could have used that green mana that I said you float. Mm-hmm. You could have used that. Now, this is a dicey situation because if they have any instant speed removal, you can't play through that. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff I outlined at the beginning of the ideal go-off situation, mm-hmm. you kind of need to already have your hand set up. You mm-hmm. need to have enough green mana. But say you're playing against Sly, mm-hmm. you win very quickly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that is... A point to make about pre-modern in general is the understanding of the cards in the format because it is a closed pool of cards. Um, an understanding of various meta decks or common decks is greatly to your advantage, especially as a combo deck. Because um, mm-hmm. as you said, if you're doing this and say you know you're trying to do this and it's on a you know 
green madness or something like that and they're tapped or something or whatever like you know the coast is clear nothing's gonna happen but Bingo. you know if uh they got a white open or something like that you just you stop and say okay not the time mm-hmm. um so we've made reference here a couple times i'm gonna kind of pivot a little bit between feb and hermit feb mm-hmm. so Hermit Feb is the more recent addition or recent iteration of said deck. Yes. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, about it took a little bit for purists mm-hmm. to get on board. Can you tell us why Hermit, which in this case is Hermit Druid, for those of you not familiar, it's a two-mana creature. Um, you pay one green, tap it, um, reveal cards, until you reveal a basic land, put the basic land into your hand, the rest go into your graveyard, correct? Mm-hmm. I can't remember if that's exact wording. You, I believe it's reveal until you find a basic land, the basic land goes to your hand, the rest go to your graveyard. Now, an important thing... Actually, no, I'm not an expert on this deck. Tell me why Hermit Druid is very important to this deck and how you take advantage of it. Okay, so the very first thing I have to say is that this was not my creation. All credit goes to Johannes Kamler. Uh, He brewed this up, and so this is rewinding the clock back a year. I had played regular Feb and done terribly. Then I put the Dreadnoughts in, the Dreadnought and Stifle, and I did very well with it. And at this point, my... uh, podcast co-host jared had uh jared Desette had sent me the list and i was just like i have no idea what i'm looking at here so he kind of explained how the combo works and i was like uh this this looks too crazy to me mm-hmm. who gave you this list so he sent me to svanta Longraf. <laughs> Svanta sent me to Johannes, who actually brewed it up. Mm-hmm. And so I was in constant conversations with him because he was kind of like, yeah, it's it's fun, but the big problem with it is like you just auto lose to mono red. Sly or goblins is just going to destroy you. I can't figure out that matchup. So I haven't even picked up the deck in a major tournament um, but to quickly go through and, and one last thing I wanted to mention on, on regular Feb is, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the, the glue that ties it all together, how yes. we were just discussing how there are issues mm-hmm. that will come up is for cabal therapy. Absolutely. Cabal therapy, we cover that one now. Yeah, Cabal Therapy, and because it's also relevant to Hermit Feb, because it's Mm. part of that combo. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Cabal Therapy is really, I I feel like if that wasn't in the deck, this would be unplayable. Um, Because you usually know automatically, based on your opponent's deck or colors or whatever, you know the card that's going to beat you. You know what it is that is going to stop you from going off, whether it's Swords to Plowshares, Counterspell, Humility, um, Pernicious Deed. Like, like you can naturalize. You can very easily kind of tell from the first few turns 
what's going to stop you. You also play dorks, you play wall of roots. So you can, you know, you can miss once and then you can do it again. Uh, you play four of them. So you maybe will draw mm-hmm. multiples of them. Uh, so cabal therapy, it cannot be understated how important it is to this deck. Uh, you also play mesmeric fiends. So you can very easily stop your opponent from stopping you. Um, so now back to Hermit Feb. Absolutely. Uh, so this is <laughs> very complicated. All right. So I will folks, try. It's story time. Yeah, exactly. It's, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it the simple way. Mm-hmm. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to Hermit Druid your entire library into your graveyard a very important note your library cannot 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 have a basic land right never ever ever put a basic land in your hermit druid deck yes just to be (laughs) absolutely clear so when we when we mention the exact wording on hermit druid the important part is that last part where it says after you put the basic land that you don't have the rest goes to your graveyard since it all goes to your graveyard at the same time you get to choose the order in which it goes to your graveyard you are going to put a karmic guide on top that is the only and most relevant thing to being on top but since you're playing magic and you're a gentleman you are also going to have underneath the karmic guide your shapeshifter your Cabal Therapy, your Acroma, your Psychotog, and most likely your Crozen Reclamation and two Unearths. So if you didn't have an Unearth or Shallow Grave in your hand, you are going to flashback the Crozen Reclamation to get your two Unearths. You're then going to cast the Unearth. You're going to put the Shapeshifter into play. The shapeshifter will now trigger the karmic guide ability to put any creature from your graveyard into play. You are going to choose, and actually the correct line of play here is to target the karmic guide itself (laughs) and then do this a second time, and you are going to put the psychotog into play. I played this deck for six months not knowing that (laughs) until I, uh, I won't even get into it. It's a complicated story, but it was a streamed match against Gabe Farkas on Dead Guy Ale when I learned this fact. (laughs) Um, But anyways, the important thing is that you put the Psychotog into play. Mm -hmm. You are now going to, because of the unearth situation we just went over, if you had just put the psychotog on top and unearthed the shapeshifter, your shapeshifter is no longer a psychotog. So you need to put the psychotog into play and then sacrifice it to flashback a cabal therapy. To get that on top of your graveyard. So that the, the shapeshifter is now copying mm-hmm. a psychotog. Okay. Um, at this point... Your opponent should have, if they had anything relevant, should have killed the shapeshifter. So what you're naming with Cabal Therapy is almost never relevant. Mm -hmm. 
but I'll usually name the instant speed removal just in case my opponent didn't understand. Yep. <laughs> and uh, biffed on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you now have the Volrath Shapeshifter copying the Psychotog. Mm-hmm. You're going to remove from the bottom of your graveyard however much you want. I usually just tell my opponent what I'm doing and just remove the whole thing, mm-hmm. except for the Acroma. Mm-hmm. So since Psychotog says remove two cards from your graveyard, uh, all you got to do is make sure that the last thing you remove is the Psychotog and that the Acroma is directly underneath it mm-hmm. and that you have an even amount because <laughs> sure. you can't remove only one. Mm. <laughs> so it can't be just the Psychotog and Acroma left in your graveyard. <laughs> now that your Shapeshifter is copying an Acroma, it has all of the pumps from the Psychotog that just removed your entire graveyard, mm-hmm. which is something like 20 plus pumps. Mm-hmm. And your Acroma... 6-6, six, six, flying, trample, haste, most relevantly. Yep. Protection from red, protection from black, vigilance. You attack in with this giant beater, and there is nothing they can do at this point. Gotcha. So the hermit adds another dimension to the typical Feb, because initially in Feb it was you know using your survival, most likely, to set up Triskelion Devourer. Yes. Hermit allows you to go off by dumping the yard, setting it up in such a way to have a, a different kill condition. Mm-hmm. So it, it is uh, two different plans. Now, does well, the genius of it, the okay. genius that Johannes uh, put together that I think he deserves all the credit is that there is so much overlap, you know, sure. because Feb itself like you look at that list, you see all those one ofs and you kind of think like, Oh, there's so much room for tinkering. There's really not mm-hmm. like the current fab iterations are really tight and I wouldn't really change them that much. Mm-hmm. But because the hermit uses so many cards that are in basic fab, you're essentially just adding the four hermits, the crows and reclamation, the um, the Acroma mm-hmm. and the Karmic Guide, and that's right. really it. Absolutely. Now, with- so sorry. Continue with your question. <laughs> no, that's all right. No, interrupt me anytime because I'm just kind of spitballing as I see things here. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say though that adding the Hermit package? Going for it, you have to be more careful of things like a Tormod script because there are opportunities with Hermit 100%. where a crypt can get you or a, uh, you know, not Phyrexian Arena. I've, I played this card. Why can't I remember the damn name? Furnace. Of the card? There we go. I played four <laughs> of these million things. Yep. Um, like Hermit, Hermit does open you up to not only that, mm-hmm. but it opens up your mana base. Absolutely. Uh, so what do you do? Wastelands, ports, how Armageddon, God forbid. Yes. Or, like, so the, the main reason I was drawn to this mm-hmm. was because when I was playing Feb, um, 
I just felt like so like you're essentially a one card combo with Feb. Mm-hmm. You need your survivals. Feb plays Oromancer main because there's so much enchantment hate. Um, and so you've got plenty of ways to kind of like work around all the hate for Feb, mm-hmm. but still you're a one card combo. You can only have four of this one card. Mm-hmm. Uh, people were playing limb duels vault. The current iteration of Feb just goes for intuition, which I actually think is better, which shout out to Robin Lund. Uh, he's done so much innovating with Feb and we actually had him on the pre modcast, I think two years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what kind of introduced me to Feb. Um, the, the, he, he's made so many great innovations, but one of the big ones was just how good intuition is in Feb because it kind of makes it so that you go from four of your one card combo to eight of your one card combo Mm -hmm. with the added advantage of sometimes you intuition for three cabal therapy and control can't do shit about that. Yeah, that's really, <laughs> really, really. I've had that happen to me. It's rough. It's not a fun time nope. at all. It was one of my favorite moments against a landstill deck when I cast Intuition and he goes, Yeah, sure. He's got two blue open. He's thinking, I'm going to get three survivals. I get three cabal therapies <laughs> and he goes, crap. <laughs> yeah. Those, those are moments in your life where you just wonder if counterspell really is the best card ever made. <laughs> and you realize it's not. So uh, damn it. I know. So what, what draws you because Feb, obviously powerful deck, Hermit mm-hmm. Feb, powerful deck. What, what makes your opinion that Hermit Feb is the way to go over Feb? So, as I said, Feb Classic is so focused on the survival and protecting this survival. Hermit Druid, yes, it is a more fragile combo, but it is a completely different line of attack. Uh, So, Hermit Druid is not going to get duress out of your hand turn one. Mm -hmm. Um, It is also... A one mana or one card combo for one colorless and one green, just like survival. <laughs> so you open up a hand and you've got one survival, one hermit druid. You're basically golden because you just figure out what your opponent's on and which of the two lines is the correct way to go. Absolutely. Because some decks, you are never going to untap with a hermit druid in play. If you're playing against Sly, it's just not going to happen. Correct. So you just go the Feb route. Other decks, the Hermit Druid is such a fast win mm-hmm. that you're just going to go off before they can e- say you're playing against Parfait and you Cabal Therapy their swords and then you can just Hermit Druid and win the next turn. Absolutely. And that's another reason. Um, and this might be a good time to kind of jump into... Uh, is it Denny or Danny? My screen's a little... It's Denny, Denny right? McLean. Denny McLean. This is a list you had had me pull up and you have on our screen of uh, a current iteration of Hermit Feb. Yes. Um, and one card I'll mention in here that is very helpful as a one-of is the Elvish Spirit Guide to accelerate you <laughs> in the hand to get you out there. But very quickly, here is the list. 
a chroma angel, one achroma, one elvish spirit guide, one Findhorn elves, one karmic guide, one Lanawar elves, one palancron, one Phyrexian devourer, one psychotog, one squee, one Triskelion, two mesmeric fiend, two Volrath shapeshifters, two wall of roots, four birds, four hermit for your creatures. Instance, one intuition, one Croson reclamation, one shallow grave. Sorceries, four cabal therapy, four unearth. Four enchantments in survival of the fittest. Running 21 lands, one brush land, one Trevor's ruin, uh, three reflecting pool, four city of brass, four gemstone mine, four land of war wastes, and four Yavamaya coasts. A sideboard being one arm monster, three engineered plagues, one Gitu slinger, one gorilla shaman, two intuitions, two intuitions, one monk realist, one ray of revelation, one squee, three swords, one uktabi. Um, and this is Denny McLean. You can look mm-hmm. this up on TC Decks under. Um, is it just listed as Feb or is it actually listed as Hermit? It's in, Feb? in the Feb section. It's in the Feb but section. But it's listed as Hermit Feb. If you look in the Full English Breakfast subsection, mm-hmm. all Hermit Feb goes in there. Um, so, yeah. So Denny and Robin were uh, in contact, and I think they both made the elimination round for the January monthly on Hermit Feb. That sounds right. There were at least two. I think those were the two where they were in there. And this is actually a more recent list. This is his list from February. Um, Not from a monthly, but from an in-person tournament. It looks like like Collector Legion. The Califir. It's the Cali one, right? Collector Legion. I believe so. Yep. Okay. Shout out to California and all the work that they do. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, basically, so... I bring up Robin because, as you'll note, there is one intuition in the main and two intuitions in the board here. Mm-hmm. That was uh, kind of what he wanted to change it from the list that I top aided the Fall Brawl with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was playing my kind of over the summer. All right, let's rewind back a little bit further. Okay, sure. So, got all the uh, time in the world. Yeah, so after Johannes showed me, uh, or and me and him were in contact about Hermit Feb, I played it in the Spring Fling. Um, he was still so down on the red matchup. My tech to win the red matchups was for Tempting Worm in the board, which was okay. I mm-hmm. mean, you start chaining them with survivals, but the big thing was I realized you kind of just want to cut the Hermit Druid package against Mono Red. Mm-hmm. So then I played it a couple of times over the summer, and um, I went to an NYC meetup, and Mike Flores was there. And I played against him. He was on Sly. And so we kind of chatted a little bit, because he was kind of looking at the deck, and he was like, "Uh, it's just too fragile. Like I don't think this is any good. But I wanted to pick his brain and kind of figure out, and... He was suggesting actually to win the Sly matchup, a Shield Sphere and a Worship. And he had also mentioned just go full for Enlightened Tutor, you know, because you're so focused on the survival of the fittest already. Um, and that way, and at the time, I think I was playing one Enlightened Tutor main, one in the board, mostly for just like silver bullets. Mm hmm. So his suggestion made me go, I think there's something to that. 
what you do is you take out the Hermit Druids against a matchup in which Hermit Druid is just dead on arrival, mm-hmm. and you bring in three more Enlightened Tutors. So now mm-hmm. you've got your eight one-card combo once again, but mm-hmm. also against uh, Goblins. You're bringing in the Engineered Plagues. So mm-hmm. the Enlightened Tutors find that. Um in the monthly that I played that kind of version, I found that the worship shield sphere thing wasn't working out as well as I had mm-hmm. planned. And that's when I discovered solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. You bring in solitary confinement and another squee and adding another squee was another point owing to Robin's evolution. You want to squee in basic feb because when we had just discussed like all the things your opponent could do to ruin your combo Actually taking out your squee if you only have one is probably the worst thing that can happen to you in regular Feb. Because for those early turns, you're just trying to grind out the card advantage through squee and set up for the combo win. And -hmm. if you don't have squee all of a sudden, you're just hoping to draw creatures. So he said two squee main for regular Feb. So in Hermit Feb, when you're taking out the Hermits, you're bringing in a second Squee. Gotcha. Two Squee with a Solitary Confinement against Sly, what are they going to do? They better have Anarchy. Yep, absolutely. Because <laughs> there's literally nothing else they can do to beat you. Yeah, that's as a, as a Sly player, that's that <laughs> always fun to deal with. Just pack it in real quick. Mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was playing this version with the Enlightened Tutors. Mm-hmm. That's what I made the top eight of the Fall Brawl with. Robin uh, said that he thinks intuition is the way to go. He and Denny both made the elimination rounds with it. Denny has once again <laughs> made an em- elimination <laughs> round. Um he actually just recently lost to Aaron Dix in the February monthly elimination. Womp, 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 on womp. guess what? Sly. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron's back with Sly, huh? Mm-hmm. I see. But uh, I mean it kind of shows that like that like Aaron said, like all the games were close. <laughs> like mm-hmm. every single one. So that mono red matchup has been shored up from where it was a year ago, where it was unwinnable with Hermit Feb. Awesome. Um, so I was bringing up all of this to kind of say, like, I think that the intuition innovation is great. Mm-hmm. Um, another change that they made was, uh, they dropped the Hypnox thing, which we didn't really talk about. I no, meant we to mention that. over that. Yeah. Let's briefly talk Hypnox. So I love Hypnox. Um, what is Hypnox? I'm still not completely sold on removing it. <laughs> we'll tell, but what, what is I, I want to try it. So, so Hypnox has a very interesting thing. Uh, it is the one ETB that cannot unearth a shapeshifter into. It's an 8-8 black creature for 11 mana, an 8-8 flyer, that, interestingly enough, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, I got hypnoxed in that match the first time I played against Full English Breakfast. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) So, Hypnox reads, when Hypnox enters the battlefield, your opponent's entire hand is removed from the game. When Hypnox leaves the battlefield they get those cards back. However, 
since you are playing this through a Volrath shapeshifter, as long as it is no longer a Hypnox, they are never getting those cards back. Mm. Exactly. Okay. So it's what uh, Parallax uh, Void or whatever the uh, Black Parallax yeah. wants to actually be. Right, exactly. Okay. So um, the interesting thing, like I said, it's the one that doesn't work with Unearth because it actually reads if Hypnox was played from your hand. So you cannot unearth the shapeshifter. You can't mm -hmm. reanimate a Hypnox in order to get the trigger. You have to actually cast the shapeshifter for one colorless and two blue. Gotcha. Um, however, it was one of my favorite ways to get out of a dicey situation because sometimes your opponent doesn't just have one card that you're worried about. Sometimes their whole hand you're worried about. <laughs> sometimes if you're playing against Sly, like that's the way you're going to win. You're just going to yep. take out all that burn that they're sitting on and then mm -hmm. swing in with an 8-8 flyer. Yeah. Um, so Hypnox is really good, but I'm going to test this out. They contend that just two Mesmeric Fiend is better because so much more often you end up just wanting to cast a Mesmeric Fiend. Mm -hmm. And I totally understand that because, as I said before, a lot of times there's really just one thing you're looking for. And also, Hypnox being best against the control deck, it's very likely that that Shapeshifter is just not going to resolve when you cast it with the Hypnox on top. Yeah, that I would say that's probably accurate. Yeah, and that happened to me many times. So I, I can see the logic behind changing that Hypnox to a second Mesmeric Fiend. I was actually playing three Elvish Spirit Guides in my yeah. list because I was owing to the Hermit Druid, like, you just want to be fast. Uh, so many times I would scoop up wins just by being so fast with the Hermit. And... That kind of goes back to your initial question of like, why does Hermit Druid speak to you? Because a lot of times I've found in this format, um, it doesn't matter if your opponent can fight you. It matters if they have the time to fight you. Yes, that's accurate. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think I've come to that conclusion too when brewing, when looking at things in this format is... It is very rare you have an opportunity to dirtle. Right. You exactly. need to be pushing forward in some way and being proactive. Even if proactive means, I mean, land tax is proactive. You're getting cards out of your library. You're thinning it out. You're feeding the scroll rack. Mm -hmm. um, so that is the way you need to be going. Um, so, yeah, dirtle decks don't play well, especially into these kinds of decks. Just gives yes. them way too much time. Mm hmm. Yeah. Your ideal situation with Hermit Feb is you sit down and your opponent is not really doing anything meaningful until turn four because mm -hmm. you are going to have one by then. <laughs> Absolutely. So as we're thinking about this list, uh, specifically the sideboard, mm -hmm. we yeah, see a lot. We see a lot of. Uktavi, Ray of Revelation, Monk, Gorilla Shaman. And that is, I suspect, because the weaknesses to this deck doesn't isn't necessarily even getting your graveyard removed. It's other things. Like I, I had the opportunity to play this 
against Hermit Feb twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Dylan Kramer here in Madison piloted mm-hmm. Hermit Feb at the top eight of the last Misty event. I was uh, watching. Got to face him in the quarterfinals. <laughs> uh, we both at the end of that realized how Kroos and Reclamation worked. <laughs> I'm so glad you did. I was yes, screaming at the screen. <laughs> I figured you were. I kind of thought of you as... I, I, <laughs> Wait I, a minute. <laughs> that, th- to be fair, I was so drained at that point. I was just like, Dylan's a great player. So it's like, he knows what he's doing. I'm just kind of like, okay. Vision just let it happen. Get, yeah. <laughs> it did. It's interesting to watch. It's not yeah. great. Um, but effective cards against this deck aren't even necessarily your Tormod's correct. Uh, I use something like this deck folds to Cursed Totem. Yes. And that's what I was going to mention when we were talking about like the things you're most concerned about. It is not the removal. It is not the counters. It is Cursed Totem. It is humility. <laughs> Also, engineered plague. You set that on yes. human. No more mm-hmm. hermit. You set that on devourer. No more devourer. Even better. You set, you it, set it on, on Phyrexian. Yep, Phyrexian. Because get this, they eroded. Is Volras a Phyrexian? It is. <laughs> How crazy great. is that? I didn't even realize. That's fantastic. So, so a lot of people plague, know that they eroded oh all cards with the word, all creatures with the word Phyrexian to be Phyrexian. Volrath <laughs> Shapeshifter is Phyrexian now. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> so, Engineered Plague, not a friend as well. Not a friend, no. Um, and actually, I think I won through that once by hard casting a karmic guide to retrieve an acroma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, karmic guide it was can, the only thing I could do without the shapeshifter. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, karmic guide can be just a reanimation spell. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my thoughts on that matchup when I played, I was on a mono blue dreadnought. So mm-hmm. I had counterspells and everything, but it's, you cannot let a survival resolve. Right. Number one in this deck ever. Right. Um, so you on your end have to be like, how do I resolve the survival through control? Correct. And I kind of want to delve into a little bit more of some of the matchups now. So we've seen okay. the, we've seen the meta shift over time. It's coming back a little bit, but Sly got pushed out. Uh-huh. By Parfait, by Mono Blue, in a lot of ways. Um, so that opens up the field for this sort of deck to be more proficient. Yes. How were those matchups against a um the Parfait lists? Those I, I almost uh, prisony decks, but they're proactive prison decks. They're kind of like. Pushing a game plan forward with inevitability. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it looks like you may have closed your screen. No, I didn't. I nope, don't know why is. that. Oh, now it's back. <laughs> so how did how do you fight against the new meta? Because we knew there was innovations now against red. How we're fighting it, but what is what if we took popular decks? So starting with a popular prison deck, parfait. How do you play against parfait? What's our plan? Um. So the good thing about uh classic feb specifically is that you have the ability to go grindy a lot of as you mentioned like your sideboard you have things like 
Gorilla Shaman, Monk Realist, Octavia Orangutan, Rev Revelation. Um, so a lot of times what you'll end up doing, and quick aside, in that March monthly when I was playing Phyrexian uh, Feb, Phyrexian mm-hmm. Dreadnought Feb, I made a hilarious blunder where my first month where I went one in five, I found myself all the time. I went with kind of a stock feb list mm-hmm. and stock feb has things like duress, hydroblast, engineered plague, naturalize mm-hmm. a lot of non-creatures in the board. And I found myself boarding in and then going, I don't have enough creatures to survival. So screw all that. I'm just going to make an all-creature sideboard. Okay. I'll put two Monk Realists to deal with the enchantments rather than Ray of Revelation. Oh, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Humility is a card. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually played Ryan Grodzinski's famous uh, mono-white trade binder deck <laughs> <laughs> and won through the humility by attacking with 1-1 one, one dreadnoughts and birds. <laughs> and that that is also something to keep in mind with this deck as well is, I mean, I was on Dreadnought again in the match we were talking about, and I got beat down for like 10 turns with a freaking mesmeric fiend, I just couldn't do anything. Right. <laughs> so sometimes it's just like against the control decks, it's just like, here's an elf, here's a fiend, and uh, attack you. Right. Good, good games. Exactly. It's like humility stops your combo, but you can still cast a bunch of one ones. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But anyways, all of that is to say, like, that was a lesson learned moment for me. So I do now play ray of revelation or something that's going to kill humility mm-hmm. <laughs> unlike monk realist which will not but you you have the ability to transform into a grindy deck um mm-hmm. so that's how i i believe i didn't play parfait but i played two terrageddon decks that were very mm-hmm. similar to parfait sure. um and i had to beat both of them through engineered plague cursed totem Mm -hmm. all that stuff and the way you do it is really you just get creative you start searching things up with your survival also this is one of the reasons why i am thinking that intuition is better than enlightened tutor as Mm -hmm. your uh sequence intuitioning for a ray of revelation is so great so much fun to do. Um, so like, that's how you're going to try and beat them. Um, a very important thing. And I've mentioned that like some matchups you're going to just completely side out the hermit druid package and mm-hmm. become a dedicated feb deck. It's not always obvious which opponents you're going to want to do that against. And that was actually the bulk of my conversations with Robin was which matchups do you want to do that? Because figure out. Well, that's the thing. It's kind of still up in the air. (laughs) (laughs) So a good example, uh, take the rock. Sure. The rock has a lot of removal. Mm -hmm. So you'd kind of think like, oh, Hermit Druid's probably not that good. But at the same time, the rock isn't very fast. 
Mm-hmm. That makes Hermit Druid very good. <laughs> yes, it does. And when their removal is something like Pernicious Deed, like a Hermit Druid is probably going to get in there before they get to that turn four when they can Pernicious Deed you. Mm-hmm. So Especially I'm cutting birds and elves. Mm-hmm. So I'm personally of the belief that you keep the Hermit Druid package in against the rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Robin, Robin landed on the other it. side of that. <laughs> I don't remember exactly, or maybe it was dead guy. Yeah. I think it was dead guy. He was talking about which mm-hmm. dead guy is a little bit tougher because they've got the swords. Um, and just, Oh my gosh. So much, uh, discard. Yeah. I would uh, think that would discard be- is really bad against you. Yeah, and because and- that just screws up your graveyard order, right? The important mm. part of that. And then you're having to rely on a psychotog to kind of clean it up. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if you're going for say like the hermit druid win, mm-hmm. you can do that in your upkeep. So That's their, true. their sorcery speed discard isn't going to do much, but that is a very tough matchup. Dead guys specifically. That's, that's probably one of the hardest matchups for this deck mm-hmm. because they have so many angles of attack and discard in general is very good against you because mm-hmm. pretty much everything in your hand is a resource that you are going to need, whether it is a creature that you're going to pitch to survival or the unearth that you're going to use to cheat on mana, uh, or, you know, if they Gerard's verdict you and you're like, I think I have to drop some lands, but you only play 21 lands and you, you kind of, 21 or 22, those are the only numbers I would ever go with as far as lands in this mm-hmm. deck. Gotcha, gotcha. So here's one thing. Mm-hmm. Sideboard. Yeah. Explain to us, we understand everything else. Get to Slinger. Please explain Get to Slinger. Um, so this is one of their innovations. I have yet to play it, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. I actually played Crater Hellion in this slot because I personally found it when I was doing exactly what I just described of going mm-hmm. grindy. Um, I found it to be fantastic against mm-hmm. some of the decks where you're taking out the Hermit Druid win and you're just kind of thinking like, all right, I'm going to have to clean up their creatures at some point. Mm-hmm. Whether they are things like a Mesmeric Fiend that has an important card of yours or mm-hmm. a Meddling Mage that is naming an important card... I mm-hmm. kind of figured, okay, Crater Hellion does that, but then it's also a board wipe against goblins, against sure. elves, against so many things. Um, mm. They contend that you've got the three plague to deal with those two decks, and the Gitu Slinger is really just to have something survivable in order to take out those problem creatures that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um very important to this aspect of the sideboard is the three swords to plowshares. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a addition of mine. Uh, Johannes had mentioned doing it before. I'll give him credit again. <laughs> mm-hmm. He seriously deserves credit for so much because I was in constant contact with him <laughs> for like eight months. Every idea I had, I bounced off of him. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and many of them came directly from him. And for the longest time, I didn't include it because I was like, yeah, but like, what are you really worried about? But what sold me on swords was when I just lost to a turn to hermit knot mm. where it was like, oh, I have no way to go under you. <laughs> yeah. So if there's a deck that gets faster than you. It's it's that one. Mm-hmm. But swords really is so ideal. I mean, it is hands down the best creature removal in the format and it solves so many problems so the swords you could do two three is probably the way to go but uh two or three swords i think you absolutely must have in this deck um because it's also going to be your stop a lackey it's Mm -hmm. also going to be your buy me some time um just it it solves so many problems but what what they were kind of saying they included the slinger because sometimes you want to be able to tutor for that creature removal Mm -hmm. and with survival gitu slinger is tutorable gotcha okay so it's serving a purpose Mm -hmm. um and it's also unearthable as is true it is definitely unearthable as well so Mm. when playing this deck kind of getting into what are some things things that I've taken away from you so far is one um get your reps in. Yes. If you're going to pick up this deck, go in, play your matches, don't be afraid to lose, just play them, play them, play them, get your patterns down. Bingo. Um and actually let me just jump in real quick. I mm-hmm. I had uh Galen LeMay came mm-hmm. to me and Robin and said, Hey, I want to pick up Hermit Feb. And we were like, have you played Feb? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, no, we both suggested get your full English breakfast reps in before you transition to Hermit <coughs> Feb, just because if, if you're going at this and you're playing Hermit Feb first, like, you're not going to understand all that you're missing from the Feb side of the deck. You're probably going to end up going for the Hermit combo as much as possible because it's the more straightforward, which sounds weird when I just described how complicated it is, Mm -hmm. but it is. It's the more straightforward one, but you really need to understand all the sidelines of survival and classic Feb Mm -hmm. because that all those enters the battlefield things with the shapeshifter, all the things that you're going to search up to get yourself out of a jam. Like mm-hmm. you, you have to understand that before you start getting into the hermit fab jams. Gotcha. So, uh, so getting your basics down. Exactly. Uh, before you're adding another complicating factor. Bingo. So is there ever opportunities with this deck where, you know it's a harder matchup, a uh, dead guy, something like that, where you're just becoming a very bad beatdown deck. If somebody got um, at the first Misty Mount, uh, they coined the term uh, Caleb was Caleb Durward was playing Alurin, mm-hmm. uh, and it ended up in some matches being called Bug Garbo Beats because yeah. <laughs> things knocking in. But this has that opportunity, like your Mesmericking. Sometimes maybe if you can land like a Tog early yep. against Control. Like, it just can go the distance. Are there times where even that's the way to go? Well, while keeping the combo in the back of your mind, obviously, 
you see an opportunity it's just like, man, I could just get in here with the, this talk and get there. I think I saw a match once, I don't remember where, but where they played the Devourer and just did it a couple times to make it a whatever, whatever, and just won that way because it was late game, resources were tapped, and mm-hmm. here you go. 100%. So keeping uh, a point to keep in mind is you don't have to combo to win. There are avenues if the combo is shut off to you. Absolutely. So when we had Robin on, he described this and he said, yeah, you, you kind of become a bad rock deck. <laughs> 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 like you don't have the Bayloths or the drain hermits, but I mean, sometimes just, you know, having the, uh, mana ramp and then your mesmeric fiends and, uh, whatever you can find, can sometimes get there. It it has absolutely happened to me. So, uh, first I, I need to say like when drawing hands, like you're going to basically just try and mull to one of the two one card combos. Mm -hmm. Um, you're really against the blind opponent, not going to want to keep a hand that doesn't have a survival, a druid, or a way to find them. Um, but uh, I have hard cast Elvish spirit guides and attacked with those, the mm-hmm. green ogre. Um, yeah. I've, I've definitely won with Psychotog mm-hmm. many, many times because a lot of times what happened in that situation is you got screwed trying to go into the combo, but they ended up spending so many resources to do that, to stop you from winning that way that Mm -hmm. they got depleted. And now you just, you know, you get your one hits in and you've got a pretty full graveyard at this point. And then you just drop your hand, remove your graveyard and go for the win with the psychotog. Um, I have yet to do the devourer trick, but I have absolutely, you know, put it into play just to make it a five, five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I've yet to win that way, but it, it happens, you know? Um, I've also used Triskelion just as a Triskelion. Yep. Six <laughs> mana. I can just clean up the board and swing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so when, what is some other stuff that is just not readily apparent when playing this deck to keep in mind? Um, as you start to pilot it, what little tips and tricks are not, you know, just readily out there so you can just see in front of your eyes? What, what are some things that experience has granted you while playing this deck? Now, that is a giant book <laughs> that I will one day release. Absolutely. <laughs> However, well, a, couple a, couple of, a couple of random ones. Um, so the, the Shallow Grave edition. Um, so that was owing to discovery and I was actually on three unearth two shallow grave because this came up for me multiple times. Maybe Denny and Robin are correct that four unearth one shallow grave is the right way to go. But shallow grave is a backdoor hermit win. So say you're playing against Sly or something with a ton of, uh, burn, ways to remove the druid shallow grave granting it haste end of their turn you shallow grave your hermit druid activate it right then and there and is there also in that space 
Is that one of those ones where if you do it at the end of turn, say you're short on mana, mm-hmm. you do it at the end of their turn, and Shallow Grave says at the at the end of turn, it if you do it on their end step, does it carry over to your turn so you can untap with mana? No, so no, it's not that's one of those that's a rule there. that's been cleaned up. Um, oh, they have cleaned that up. Yeah, yeah. So that that no longer happens, like the old waylay thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So that no longer happens, but relevantly. Shallow Grave removes the creature at the end of turn. So you Shallow Grave your Hermit Druid, you can still keep that Karmic Guide on top because the Hermit Druid will now get yep. removed from... Uh, okay. Removed. So then you're golden there. Um, so that has definitely come up. Uh, let's see. Other fun, tricky situations. So... The Psychotog, so we had mentioned how it kind of cleans up your graveyard. It also can get you out of the jam of you have one of your combo pieces in hand for the Hermit win. Uh, You have, say, the Acroma, you drew it. Well, instead of removing everything and then removing the psychotog itself the last thing you do is you discard that acroma now it's on top of your graveyard mm. now your shapeshifter is an acroma gotcha. um, do not make the mistake of doing the discard before you remove things that was something mm-hmm. i learned that first month <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because as soon as you discard something to psychotog your shapeshifter is no longer a psychotog Gotcha. So that can definitely trip you up. Um, Just all sorts of tricks with the enters the battlefield things, unearthing things. Uh, So like, say, for example, uh, you'll note a lot of the creatures are below three mana. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're going to want to unearth the actual card and not a shapeshifter to get Mm -hmm. that. Um, so you can do fun things like intuition for unearth or a mancer and a survival that way, no matter what they stick you with, you're going to get that survival back. And that way you didn't lose three survivals out of your library in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things I see is, I suppose there might be an area with mesmeric fiend is interesting is if mesmeric fiend were like on top of the graveyard or something. Can you cast Volrath Shapeshifter, yep. trigger on the stack, discard something else so their card, they never get the card that is removed? So, not trigger on the stack. Not trigger, okay, so... All you need to do is cast it, it removes things, and then you just make it a different creature, and then they'll never get that back. Okay, so it's not actually using the stack, it just, you're changing the creature and you're good. Exactly. Okay. So little things like that to remove problematic cards. Mm-hmm. Um, that can definitely be done. Um, Unearth cycle. else just came to me. Oh, Wall of Roots, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. I initially was kind of on the, aren't dorks just better because they're one mana instead of two? No. Wall of Roots is incredible in this deck. Okay, Wall of Roots is great because you get to activate it on that turn. So it's kind of like a pseudo haste. So say you have the survival out, mm-hmm. you cast the wall of roots. Now you can activate the survival on your turn. Mm-hmm. Then on their turn, you can activate it again with the wall of roots. Mm. 
So gotcha. you not only have a pseudo haste, you get to do it twice on that first turn. Also, Wall of Roots is really good against the aggressive decks for obvious reasons. You have a body that can block out there. Mm -hmm. uh, against Sly, like they're going to try and remove that. They're going to blow a lightning bolt on that as soon as they can. Mm -hmm. Fair enough, fair enough. So if you're playing this deck, you were mentioning mulliganing down. You want to mulligan to a hand with one of your one-card combos. Yeah. Where do you draw the limit? Because I that's something <laughs> I have trouble playing with these sorts of decks. This, uh, Hermit Knot, things like that. The aggressive mulliganing. Where do you determine? Say you're down to five cards. You don't have five's, your one. That's the hard one, isn't it? Yeah. You never want to go to four. <laughs> how do you draw that line in your experience? So it depends a lot on what game it is. If it's a okay. blind opponent, I'll probably go down to four and then mm -hmm. stop there. Gotcha. Most decks, I will stop at five, no matter how bad the hand is. Mm -hmm. But with this deck, I'll go down to four just because you can easily still win. If you mm -hmm. have one of those combo pieces and two lands, uh, you can probably still get there, assuming that they aren't you know able to fight you gotcha. but at that point when you've mauled that low um i would probably though so unfortunately in the top eight of the fall brawl i had the situation of one lander no lander no lander mm. <laughs> so i had no choice but to go down to four yeah um since I knew that my opponent was on Mono Blue Dreadnought and I really wanted to find a good hand, I would have, or I wanted to have enough in hand, I would have probably stopped at five and just hope for the best. Um, mm -hmm. But that actually reminds me so the Mono Blue Dreadnought deck in mm -hmm. the older version, that was an abysmal matchup because. Mm -hmm they really only have to counter your key spell. Right. Um, I think that the addition of intuition over enlightened tutor really kind of made that more even. I'm not saying oh, it's absolutely. a good matchup now, but it makes it better. Well, intuition into therapy, therapy, therapy in that matchup is insane. So I think I actually, I don't know if I had that done to me, but I think one time when I was, when I was playing that matchup, it's like a therapy, like, two if not three times in a turn it was just like i just had to burn burn a foil so i didn't have two foils in yeah, my hand this is how you win <laughs> yes so it's it is powerful which brings me to after you've done this this i'm gonna ask two two questions no go ahead that was all i was gonna mention gotcha so first question is and this is something i might start doing when we talk about specific decks i think it's an interesting conversation first question what is your one trap card that this deck plays that it shouldn't play in a lot of versions? Uh, explain a little further. I don't quite understand sure. the question. <laughs> sure. So if there's a card that you typically see, like a lot of times, I'm trying to think of a good example. You'll, you'll, you'll see a deck list. Somebody has found 
Uh, I'm trying to say, what is one card that you see a lot of people play that you think is suboptimal and should be something else uh, okay. in this deck? Um, honestly, I can't really say there is much of a case for that for Hermit Feb, just okay. because uh, most Hermit Feb lists are so similar to my version, and I've never really seen anyone go way off the reservation with it because it is relatively new, um, and it's also just so tight. It is one of the tightest 60s gotcha. or 75s even. However, with regular full English breakfast, I can answer sure, that question that. a lot more. <laughs> um, sure. Well, even even with this deck, you could extend it to numbers. Like, do you think it is a, atrocious that you never play? You should always play four Cabal Therapy, never less. Yeah. Like, you could extend it to even those things. Maybe I'll refer to the first question. What, are, what is one mistake you commonly see with a build? How about that? Okay, yeah. Th- that, that I can answer. Um, yes, definitely going below for Cabal Therapy, which hilariously enough, I did on that Phyrexian <laughs> Feb list that I played in March okay, <laughs> of okay. last year. I learned my lesson. I learned a lot of you lessons did. that month. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so for Cabal Therapy, 100%. Four on Earth, I would always go with that. Um, at least two Wall of Roots, I would always go with that. Um, and then other than that, um, really the the biggest thing is if you try and go too off the reservation with the sideboard because I know with the sideboards, a lot of people kind of that was really the aha moment that I had was when I figured out the sideboard kind of late last summer into fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't stress the importance of knowing when to change out the Druid combo and because so many people like you have a tight 60 mm-hmm. and then you have 15 cards in your sideboard and you're playing an opponent and you're going, well, this is good against them. This is good against them. This is good against them. Mm-hmm. This is good against them. All right. Here's four cards that I want to bring in. What on earth do you take out? Mm-hmm. Like uh, it's, yep. it is so hard with a deck like this, because if you're not doing the transformation of taking out the Druid package, you're mm-hmm. basically left with like, okay, I'm going to drop the Shallow Grave, maybe a Wall of Roots, an Elvish Spirit Guide, a it Dork. It, it really mind. does. Mm-hmm. So it, I would highly suggest if you're going to play this deck to kind of figure out a sideboard guide. So sideboard map it as mm-hmm. you were. go through all your matchups, what comes out, what comes in. So... The, the stress during an event that, that can put on you is real. Yes. Not knowing what to do and struggling in between games mm-hmm. can really throw you off, especially with a deck like this. So I think that's a great, right. great piece and of advice. And that was the aha moment that I had was I realized, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I am over sideboarding way too much. Mm-hmm. Like I am, I am trying to put five or six cards in in so many matchups and – 
you need to understand like your 60 is so tight and so powerful Mm -hmm. that you don't want to change much. And it was actually listening to Flint talk about his hermit knot deck Mm -hmm. where he basically said like a lot of the sideboard is just kind of going with a slightly more optimal (laughs) version of the deck where he's like, say against Sly, you're taking out your reanimates and you're putting in exhumes just Mm because it doesn't take your life. Absolutely. You know, so so figure that out, and that's going to help so much. And then the next question is, what is an idea that you've wanted to work in Feb that just hasn't? <laughs> in, in addition that you think, God, this has to be... This has to be here somewhere. I just have not found the key. So I, I actually have a very good answer for that. Okay, I love that. I really wanted because my biggest problem when doing the hermit side of the combo or it comes up in regular feb where you're not going for the full-on devour trike win and you're just trying to squeak through with a creature i really want to make iridescent angel a part of the deck something that Remind can dodge that. everything. It is, is a that the protection from all colors or correct. Four okay. four flying protection from all colors. Because like that's essentially the closest you're gonna get to hexproof in yes. this format. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I like I've I've tried so many ways and there is just nothing that it especially with the Hermit Feb. Nothing that a chroma is just better because of the haste. <laughs> right. It's just, it's one of those, it, what's a good example? It's almost like fire. It's like, it's a good card. It's just not good enough. Right. Exactly. I've, I've never managed to make it work. I've never managed to figure out a way. Cause there were just so many times when I was like, ah, oh, if I could just stop everything (laughs) rather Mm -hmm. than you know having to play around it uh but yeah i've i've yet to figure out a way in which to grant haste to my iridescent angel (laughs) no concordant crossroads or whatever no okay well no you can't play a basic bound angers out i'm out of ideas no, yeah, there's really nothing. I mean, Dragon's Breath is your option, but... But then why not just play Hermit, you know, Hermit Yeah, not. then you're just playing Hermit <laughs> Not, exactly. And uh, that that does bring me to another point other people have made, which I do agree with, is that Hermit Not is the better Hermit deck. Hermit Feb is, in my opinion, the better Feb deck. Um, but I've played Hermit Not in one monthly and got my ass handed to me by the mono blue decks. Uh, I will not go back to hermit. Not (laughs) (laughs) I keep picking up thinking I'm going to get better at it. It's just, there's a lot. I, I think you have to be Flint or like (laughs) somebody akin to Flint to make it work. I can't do it. It's so... I mean, I can get those wins against the non-mono blue decks, but then you you play those matchups that just feel so unwinnable. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really bad. So bottom line, before we kind of move on to our next thing, Hermit Feb, long history, 
Very powerful thing, very powerful deck. Two different sides to it, but pick up with caution and knowing that you can't, very unlikely that you will just pick it up and go on a tear. Yeah. I should I should throw out a, a special compliment and commendation to Galen, who I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. He picked up Feb first time and I believe six owed. <laughs> okay, unless your name is Galen. Right, and you're a natural uh, combo player. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but in general, get your reps in. Do you feel that once you have your reps in, because of the complexity and the things going on here, you gain a lot of percentage points in matchups because people don't understand how you fight on these different accesses. 100%. Yep. I, I felt the is, same way with Stasis a mm-hmm. lot of times. Yeah, that is that is such a big part to the deck. And also just people not understanding the deck. It's so complex. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. If you're an experienced pilot, like your experience extends over your opponent. <laughs> Absolutely. You they don't know, you know, when can they interact mm-hmm. and what to do. Um, don't know when to pack it in or when you've even made a mistake. Right. And left something open. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I I've full on won matches when I could see how my opponent could have beaten me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that is the strength to a deck such as this that is hard to pilot, mm-hmm. um, is you will gain percentage points. On the other hand, the devil's advocate side, do you feel like... I, I have started to feel like this a little bit with stasis. I mean, it might just because I've been playing it so much was... I feel like you lose a lot of percentage points and so many percentage points when you're playing against a skilled opponent who knows what's going on. Oh, yeah. Totally. If they so if they know your breakpoints, then yeah, you're in trouble. Absolutely. So, bottom line is, pick it up, try it. It's a fun deck. You'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot about how cards interact with each other and what stacks do and stacks don't. Yes. <laughs> um, but no, it's a it's a great deck. If you're looking for this, um, look up the TC decks. Uh, you'll find decks there. Uh, Mike Harris is a good resource. Uh, Robin Lund. As well, if you go and find the event names, anything that typically says monthly top eight, um, fall brawl, spring fling, there will typically be a VOD of it somewhere, whether that is with the pre-mod cast, or not pre-mod cast, uh, Andrew Walker from the pre-mod cast doing the coverage on the monthlies, Mike Hoyp doing the coverage um, for the spring flings, fall brawls, uh, additionally, um, go ahead and look up the Misty Mountain one because Feb was on there a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I, or no, it might have just been the quarterfinals. But no, that it is out there. Watch it in action. You won't regret it. Um, so that kind of takes care of full English breakfast. Do you have any final thoughts before we kind of move on to our next little bit? Uh, no, I think, you know, there's a million things that can be said, but... Nothing says it better than experience. So, yeah, mm-hmm. if, if you want to play it, you, you just got to play it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So moving on from Feb, uh, another thing that you do is you produce content in the form of the pre-modcast with Andrew Walker and Jared Doucette as your co-hosts. I do. Um, yes, yes. This is 
was this the first pre-podcast or was that monster of the what came was Monster of the Week before you guys doing no, pre-modcast pre-modcast stuff, was guys? first? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we started are you guys the that, original. Yeah, we started that at early 2020, right before the pandemic, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it just kind of you know fell into place because the pandemic ended up being quite good for pre-modern, since yes. you know we were. A, a group of 30 and 40 year old guys wanting to relive the glory days and mm-hmm. not wanting to leave the house. So yep. the monthlies were kind of just a natural thing. The monthlies mm-hmm. grew exponentially. Once the pandemic started, we went yes, from having on average 20 to 30 players mm-hmm. to a hundred plus. And, uh, since Andrew runs, the monthlies, you know, like people kind of heard about the pre-modcast through that. And mm. yeah, it's been going very well. Absolutely. So for something as long standing as that, what plans does the pre-modcast have, if any of, you know, what is the next evolution of that podcast? Is there thoughts of doing, um, you know, what I would love to see is like a live do like a live version on stream <laughs> or something from like LobsterCon. Or something like that. I, I think that might be an evolution in this podcasting area. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we had talked about that. So we were all at, unfortunately, last year's LobsterCon, I was unable to attend. Uh, mm-hmm. But the year before we were all at, we had talked about, you know, doing like a live like, all right, we're actually all in the same room at the same time. Let's do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, that was also my fault that that didn't happen. Well, not my fault. It was the fault of the traffic <laughs> in Massachusetts mm. on that yeah, night. Yeah. I uh, I left with an hour to spare before we start. And that lobster con of 2021, uh the pre-modern event was just like this small thing Jared was hosting the night before. It was in like a VFW hall and it was maybe like 25 players or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, LobsterCon is the big old school event, so there were a hundred or so players there. But yeah, the pre-modern thing was tiny. So we were planning on, we'll get together like right before the pre-modern event at the VFW hall and I text the guys like, so yeah, I'm not going to make it for that. <laughs> but, it's all your fault, Mike. Right. But uh, I mean, you know, we're just kind of, we're staying in our lane, really. We have no mm-hmm. real expansion ideas. Uh, okay. Maybe if we do have time for a live one at LobsterCon, we'll do it. But LobsterCon sure. is such a whirlwind of a week, and especially with... Uh, with Jared uh, putting it on, you know, it's like, don't want to take too much time from one of the TOs. So I, I think we, we haven't really put too much thought into doing much more than what we've been doing. One second, Mike. I think our internet may have disconnected us for a second. Hopefully we get you back. Oh, I think I lost you. Mike, if you can hear me, you can uh, maybe leave the room and come back. Hmm. Never had this happen. Oh, now you're before. back. There we go. I can I can hear you now. Okay. Talk for me, buddy. Yeah. Talk. All right. Yeah. yeah I, I, I lost you for about two seconds. <laughs> it's all right. 
So then something I have been asking people is because I've gotten into kind of the, the content space and enjoying it, where would you like to see in a year pre-modern content going? We know it's growing. Um, and that'll be another question after this to get your opinion on. But as far as content, what is what do you think the next step for content is that improves from where we are? Or what would you like to see? Um, that is a great question. Uh, so interestingly enough, as I was going through some of the, the history of the deck, I was on MTG Top 8, and I now see that Premodern is on MTG Top 8. You know, oh, there you go. So it's kind of spreading itself out. Yeah, and and that's really what I want to see is more of just pre-modern filtering its way. I I mean, I I don't want it to get too big where it becomes Mm -hmm. like standard magic. Um, But I do kind of love that it spreads, and I want people who want to be in the format to find Mm -hmm. it. And have the ability to find it very easily. Like I was over the moon when I, I believe it was about a year and a half ago, the professor, uh, Tularian, mm-hmm. you know, community college, yep, he yep. put out a video about pre-modern. Mm-hmm. So I, I just like to see it kind of getting into the mouths of bigger names in magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't want, it to get to the point where it's like this super hyper competitive, you know, like I got into this in order to play the format that I love constantly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that growth is a good thing as long as it doesn't become overgrowth. (laughs) Sure. I can, I can understand that. And that discussion what you just touched on the <laughs> competitive competitiveness versus casual nature. Mm-hmm. Not that the casual people aren't competitive and not that the competitive people can't be casual. Right. Is one that has been debated mm-hmm. within the circles. And to make it very simple, I think pre-modern is getting to the point where that is going to be a question. Yeah. You have people coming in um, who are younger, are competitive, mm-hmm. want to win. Um, not that they're bad players or mean players, but they, they want, they, if they're going to play and take their time, they want to win um, yeah. above all else almost. Um, and then you have players like uh, many of the people who started who still have that drive to win. They want to win, but they want to have a good time. They want to feel rushed. Uh, I think I've heard several people say like, they love this format because of what it was. The only thing they didn't like about playing these cards originally was the PTQing system and uh-huh. the stress and the BS that went along with it. They don't want to relive that. Yes. So that's fair. Um, so I think that is a question I would love to get people together and talk about and say, mm-hmm. nope. And there's a divide, I think. I think you can have the monthlies. And then something I still have in the back of my mind is running like, a monthly Swiss online that is meant to be everybody welcome, but it's meant to be competitive. Get your yeah. competitive versions out there. I think the one thing I don't want to see, I don't ever want to see a pre-modern event that is more than like a one K. Right. I don't want to see an influx of money. If it, if people want to give away a Mox diamond, 
you know, yeah, cards. there can be prizes, That's fine. Mm-hmm, but I don't but... want to see like a 15 K pre-modern. Yeah. Like, I think that's a point where it tips. You can't come back from that tip. Yeah, it's 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 a great question. And I personally feel like I just love where pre-modern is at mm-hmm. currently. Um, Absolutely. Even though I started this conversation by talking about how kind of reliving the gory days was a big draw of pre-modern. I don't want to relive them as they were. Because at the time, I actually, I don't, I don't even know if I've shared this story on the pre-modcast, but... Story time, baby, let's go. The rules lawyering that I was subjected to, and as a 14, 15-year-old playing mm. against 20-something-year-olds, yes, it made me feel so shitty and just terrible when you would get a loss because you didn't properly stack your tangle wire triggers or mm-hmm. you didn't or you you asked you asked a question that mm. gave away obvious information and you mm. were just trying to like you know play the game but yeah. like you and like that I hated I love yes. that pre-modern with the monthlies is casual enough that you can say, oh, whoops, I forgot this. Let me just do it real quick. Yeah, back her up, back her up. Right, exactly. Or like, I'll, you know, I'll flat out tell my opponents like, like oh, and um, you just forgot to untap right there. Mm-hmm. Um, or just something simple. I never want to see it get to the point where I feel like I need to gain the edge mm-hmm. more than just play the game. Right. I never want to, I never wanted to get to the point where I feel like, okay, I need to figure out how these rules work without telling my opponent that I'm figuring out this, you know, like, like nowadays mm-hmm. it's at the point where you just go, Let's Google that real quick. You know, let's yeah, figure absolutely. it out. Let's see what's going on here. But mm-hmm. like back in the day, there was this sense of like, if I can convince my opponent, I'm not saying I had this sense. I'm saying yeah. I felt like my opponents were doing this to me where mm-hmm. they would feel like if they had more knowledge of the game than me, mm-hmm. that they could trick me into making the wrong play. Yes, I can see where you're coming from, definitely, with yeah. that. And there, there are definitely some darker sides to earlier magic mm-hmm. uh, that people don't want to relive. Right. Um, but moving forward, so you had mentioned kind of Jared uh, running. Now, he runs the pre-modern side of Lobster Con, or he does he also do the old-school side of it? Um, I mean, he and Dave Firthbar, they're kind of like partners. Um, he, I, I don't know all the exact details of... Mm-hmm. Who's running? Uh, how it's how it's going? But yeah, he's the pre-modern side. Dave is the old school side. Gotcha. Do you think? And Jared might be an interesting person after he recovers from Lobster and Con because I'm <laughs> sure he's about knee deep in it right now, um, if not up to the neck. Is I feel like pre-modern has grown past old school. Yeah, so it was really interesting to kind of watch those numbers. Um, so for anyone who didn't sign up for LobsterCon, they were posting, you know, the live signups, who's signed up and for what events. Mm-hmm. And so 
Friday is going to be pre-modern main event, old school side event. Saturday, old school main event, pre-modern side event. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting to see. And I actually think old school did end up surpassing pre-modern. But in the initial signups, pre-modern was way ahead of old school. (laughs) Has the cap been reached for LobsterCon for pre-modern? I believe so. Gotcha. So that will make it the it largest, quick. the largest pre-modern event uh, in North America. I don't know. I think of all happened. time. Does it outstrip what uh, the Euros did? I in, believe like, so. Spanish nationals. Yeah. Okay, that's really cool. Because I think they were somewhere in the like one fifty something like that, and okay. I believe LobsterCon is well over two hundred. Yeah. So then that is my what I was leading to is maybe I'm not a big scale. Is it almost a point where it is appropriate? Not that there's in sentimental things to it that pre-modern has something separate from LobsterCon as like a nationals sort of event. Is it getting that big? Well, I I really liked the. I, I think you were a part of this. That it's kind of like the different regions <laughs> end up mm-hmm. putting on giant events at different points in the year. I would, I, I would love that. Yeah. Like it is. I love that idea doing like a Midwest one, yep. a West coast, a Southeast, mm-hmm. and then have an actual nationals. And then I would love to actually see a world like, Oh, that would get, be so awesome. Get um, Mr. Berlin on board and whoever's <laughs> the old one um, in the old crew and kind of be like, what, what would it take for you, the creator of this format, to endorse a world? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a community that could actually be like, we know what the guidelines are. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, it's just about getting the people, the right people in the room. Um, but yeah, I just get the feeling like, is pre-modern stepping out of the old? Because that's where a lot of it came from. It's a lot of old school players kind of dip their toes into pre-modern a little bit to my understanding because this is before my time Mm -hmm. and then it's grown and now with the influx and because of the nature of how relatively inexpensive it is to get in it is now surpassing and the gameplay to my understanding surpasses a lot of old school i don't play it but limited card pool versus bigger card pool different things is it time that pre-modern or has pre-modern already stepped out of the shadow and I think so. Becomes independent of yeah any comparison. I think I think it's pretty independent of because like the uh, just the attitude you know mm-hmm. of of playing it. Like when you're playing old school, uh, <laughs> one of the things that really stuck with me back when I was first getting into old school in like 2016, 2017 was mm-hmm. and this was when like there was only like one old school podcast and there mm-hmm. wasn't much content. It was mm-hmm. Danny Friedman saying like old school is kind of like an inside joke and okay. you're either in on the joke or you're not. So plenty of people gotcha. like they see you casting a Jade statue and from beta and are like, what are you doing? <laughs> like what yeah. are these, these, antiques that you are playing (laughs) and for so many people it's like that seems like no fun to me at all uh for me my first actual old school game like i i just 
put together what I still had from back in the day. I was playing Chronicles Urnums and and fourth edition <laughs> Whirling Dervishes and stuff like that. And it was actually at a vintage event. And I had just brought these unsleeved, you know, like like I didn't have the duels at the time. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, playing these cheap versions of old school cards. And I had played a full day of vintage and the entire day combined was not as fun as that one pickup game of old school that I played. <laughs> like mm-hmm. old school is about the joy of playing those cards specifically. Gotcha. Pre-modern though does have a more competitive edge to it. Sure. Where it's it's like you are actually because it's it's more in tune with the old school days were kitchen table days for everyone. Mm-hmm. The pre-modern days was the PTQ days. So yes. it's just it's baked into that cake where gotcha. it's going to have a more competitive edge. But mm-hmm. as I said, like I'm not saying I want to see it become a competitive format. I, gotcha. I never want it to fall under the radar of wizards. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I don't think they're going to touch it at all the way they're going regardless. So with that being said, we kind of covered uh, a lot of Feb, Hermit Feb. We covered some content. Before we go, why don't you let people know kind of if you are on Twitter, you want to be followed, the pre-modcast, if it has a Twitter, kind of give yourself and, and the boys a shout out. Where can we find you? Yeah, so just look for the pre-modcast. Um, I am actually not a big social media person and not much of a self-promoter, but uh, please do look up the pre-modcast. You can find it whenever we post an episode. We post it in the main pre-modern group, pre-modern online play group, and we have our own Facebook page. Just look up pre-modcast. Um, we host on buzzsprout.com and it auto loads it to all the different podcast things, you know, Apple, uh, Google, iTunes, whatever. I don't even know what they all are, but if you, <laughs> a million of them. where, yeah, Spotify, wherever you find podcasts, if you look up pre modcast. P-R-E-M-O-D-C-A-S-T, you will find us. Um, And yeah, if you're just dipping your toes into the format, maybe don't try Hermit Feb, but (laughs) check out the, the tons of great content. And actually just this monthly, I played a guy, he was like 21 and it was his first pre-modern, uh, anything. And it made me so happy just to see that. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right, Mike. Well, thank you so very, very much for the time that you gave me today coming on the show. You're always a pleasure to talk to. Again, Mike Harris, Feb Master, member of the Pre-Modcast, an excellent voice and pillar in this community. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. Well, my name is William Hurst. Uh, This has been the I've Got Questions podcast. We will catch you the next time. Have a wonderful evening, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.